somebody calls me and they say, can you do this? Can you do that? And I say, well, yeah. And, and what have you had done? And they'll usually tell some horror story of somebody not, you know, finishing the job or walking off the job or whatever. And we go and we fix the problem, you know, and we show up on time and they're in the first, you show up on time and they, they come to the door and they say, they go, uh, it's nine o'clock. I'm like, yes, that's what time we said. It was nine o'clock. We're going to be here. Well, contractors don't come on time. <laughs> True story, right? You <laughs> said they go, really? Like, really? <laughs> they don't come on time. You know, it, it's crazy things like that. And so those are competitive advantages. So if you're, if you're thinking about starting a, a business, you really, you need to understand what you're, what you want to do. You have to understand what you want to do. You have to understand your competitive advantage. And then you can work all the numbers out from there. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where we tell the stories and strategies of everyday millionaires and unveil their current portfolio allocations. This is episode number 102. On last week's show, we did a review episode where we discussed what we've learned and some of the things that have stood out to us through our first 100 interviews. We also talked about new and upcoming things with the show, including a new website that will include more audience interaction and episode recaps. The episode before that, episode 100, we interviewed David. He has a current net worth of about $100 million. A really terrific story, an interview with him. So if you haven't heard that, go check it out. Again, that's interview episode number 100. Before we get into today's show, just want to thank our sponsor, Obsidian Capital, for again supporting the show. Creating passive income is one of the quickest ways to create and establish wealth. At Obsidian Capital, their core philosophy is to enable qualified investors to create long-term wealth passively through strategic real estate investments. Their team of experienced real estate professionals identify stabilized and value-add multifamily real estate assets that will provide strong financial returns, a healthy risk profile, tax incentives, and additional benefits that come with investing in real estate. They pride themselves on a high level of integrity and have experience in acquiring and managing over $300 million in multifamily assets. Furthermore, their leadership has over 45 years of combined industry experience. View their website today to learn more about their streamlined investment process at www.obsidiancapitalco.com. We appreciate you turning into the podcast week after week. If you enjoy the show, we'd appreciate you leaving a review on either iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us grow the show and also reach new millionaire interviewees. So to get into today's show, just a brief review, we have Larry. He has a current net worth of $1.9 million. He's currently a handyman, but has started various businesses and ventures, including a truck trucking company. He has worked in the water and sewer industry, vending company, as well as some real estate. So without any further delay, let's welcome Larry to the show. Larry, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're up to now? Yeah, sure. So I work uh, as a handyman now, which is uh, in the trades positions, basically, been kind of a serial entrepreneur all my life, been a straight commission salesperson, owned a vending company, owned a truck maintenance company, sold medium and heavy duty equipment. Uh, what else have I, or medium and heavy duty trucks and equipment to go with it? Uh, worked a little bit in the sewer industry, done a lot of things, have rental properties. You know, I'm a, a talent stack guy. Wow. We're going to get into a bunch of that. But first, what's your net worth today? Uh, we are right around, I just did the numbers. We're right up just under 2 million, probably 1.9. Okay. And how is that broken up? 
about 950 in real estate. There's two rental properties, one soon to be rental property, and then we own our uh, primary residence, re- residence free and clear. And then the rest is invested largely in stocks and bonds, broken out to allocated pretty much about just about 75, 25, 25% bonds, mostly in index funds and or broad-based mutual funds. And the rest is in, in uh, there's a few regular stocks and bonds and, and things like that, but mostly it's in index funds. So that's that's the breakout. And do you keep any of that on in cash or cash on hand at all? Uh, well, yeah, there's always there's a good portion of that. So we have a an ample um, emergency fund, uh, probably in the neighborhood of around on any given day. It fluctuates a little bit, but um, it runs about fifty thousand dollars. So some of that is, and that includes some of the rental property um, emergency. It's not emergency funds, but contingency funds for for breakdowns and things like that. So yeah. Cool. I want to get into your career and kind of what everything that you've done over the years, but I kind of want to just go back and rewind time a little bit. And if you can remember, what was your allocation like maybe in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, kind of where you've gotten to now? Did it change over time as you were building these businesses? Were you always putting money in the market? Were you always putting money in real estate? How did you kind of go about those allocations over those different decades? So my parents, I was very fortunate. My parents did teach me a lot about investing in the market. Um, and they were believers more. They were kind of buy and hold. This was back in the seventies and early eighties. So they were buy and hold investors in large companies. And my dad and, and my dad learned from my grandfather. My grandfather was, you wanted to buy local. And we lived in, in a Western New York town. And there was a large photo, photographic company that was in that town and everybody that lives there knows what it is. Um, but he was, we, we, we would buy and hold things that were local because we knew what was going on. We could get the pulse. And in those days before the internet, obviously, you really had to have some inside information, um, into companies if you were going to really make great things. My grandfather actually bought a little company called Halide, which was started in that same town and Halide eventually turned into Xerox. So that was, uh, uh, you know, a success program. But I got, I got involved because of just doing studies and things, even back in the day, got into index or not index, but into mutual fund investing largely because I'm kind of in my investing philosophy is to be kind of set it and forget it. So we would do automatic. Well, we, as much as you could do on automatic, I would write a check. I wrote out 12 checks every, every year, put them in envelopes and just set them in my files and sent them on at the first of the month. Um, and that's how, that was the that was the stamp and postage uh, automatic investment program, um, <laughs> which uh, yeah right because right. I know you guys are younger you don't really understand what that means but that's how, that's how I did it back in the day and so I've always just you know it's, it's that regular deposits and dollar cost averaging and all that kind of thing so I've been doing that that hasn't changed the amounts have changed obviously from time to time but but uh, I remember probably being in my probably twenty I guess. And I ran the amortizations on what $50 a month did for you over, over the period of, you know, a 40 to 50 year, uh, schedule. And of course, if you did $50 a month every month over the years, you'd end up with just about, just a little more than one and one million dollars, if I remember right. And I think I used 6%, um, as a, as a conservative estimate at that time. And it, what's ended up happening is, is that, you know, I took some of that money out and, and you actually used it to do investments into businesses and things like that. So if I had left it alone, like I should have, it would have been a little better, but that's just that's just some of that investing philosophy. But the the real estate came about as a as a factor of of working in. I guess I'm going to say I work in the trades pretty much most of my life. And so when I when I would look around at some of my successful customers and things like that, they all had rental properties, every single one of them. 
And um, so I looked at it and I'm like, I, I started asking questions, uh, being a very inquisitive person. So I started asking about the rental properties. And actually what ended up happening is one of my customers actually sold me one of the rental properties, owner financed it. That was my first one. And uh, I, I just sold it. Oh, I sold it back in 09. That was my first one. And, and he gave me all the coaching and all the things that went along. He's really been a strong mentor for me for my whole, for my whole, well, not my whole life, but since I moved to Georgia and um, great guys and learned the business. And then after that, just started acquiring and you know, learned the 1% rule and learned all that stuff. And then today still, you know, listen to podcasts all the time, listen to, listen to the various methods to learn about, about real estate and investing in general. So that's interesting. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that's a great answer. So when you were when you were putting this money away, at some point you said that you took some out to go start businesses. How did you decide what was a you know a decent amount to take out, or was it hey I'm going to take out as much as I need to start this business? How much were you going to kind of leave in the market for that long term play? What was kind of the mindset around that? Well, so the the mindset was that that we we left a obviously had some in the pre tax bucket, so that all got left in the market. But I had a, a bunch in post tax market, and so the idea always was that that money was either to buy a house to like to live in to buy houses, which I did use some of it for that, or to start businesses. And because businesses, as you know, require a lot of upfront capital, or at least they used to. Uh, there's businesses today that don't, but but uh, back in the day, say in the 80s and in the 90s. Like vending, the vending business that I started, for example, I mean, before, for each individual account, just before you even get your first dollar in revenue, you're going to lay out anywhere from three to $10,000, just depending on how much equipment goes in there and how much inventory and things like that. And that's per account. And that, and if you go out, we ended up with 110 accounts over the, over the long run, but that's before you make dollar one. And included in that is moving costs and things like that. But those are all capital expenses that you actually have to account for. So you, I've always been very uh, debt averse as much as possible. And I, I mean, I understand the, the possibility of leverage, but um, we try to stay debt averse. And, and so we paid for a lot of that stuff cash. We just went and, and wrote a check for it. So, so that vending business, what did you sell? Um, we sold snacks and sodas, largely a little bit of food, but mostly snacks and sodas. So it was the traditional vending that you see. It was a snack machine and a drink machine, um, selling a variety of products, anything from candy bars and pastries to chips and drinks and, you know, Coca-Cola water, whatever. Yeah. Um, and did you go find, coffee. did you find all the routes yourself or was that an existing business that you just purchased and then helped grow and run? So I, the, I started out of college working for a guy in the vending business. And so I actually worked for him and I, and he really taught me the ropes, uh, taught me an awful lot. He was very, very entrepreneurial. Um, and he was a, a, a really brilliant man. And so I really, he was another one of my mentors in my life. And it's uh, just a funny story. We were running vending route around, but we, I lived in Boston at the time. We were running vending route around Boston and, and I'll never forget, we hear this, he hears this thing on the radio. This is just a little side, but it's an investing story. Nonetheless, he hears this little thing on the radio and he tears off the road. And I look at him and say, what's going on? You know, what's going on? He says, got to get to a phone. This is back in the days before cell phones. And, um, he gets to this pay phone. He dials up the phone and he does this thing. And I'd kind of learned you didn't really question him too much when he did stuff like that. So probably fast forward about two weeks later, this was in 1986. And so, uh, fast forward about two weeks later, we're in talking to some, talking to one of our customers and the customer says, Oh, you know, what'd you think of the lottery last night? And he throws out to this customer, he goes, I won the lottery two weeks ago. 
and I, and, he, and she's like, well, what's that? What, well, what do you mean you won the lottery? She says, he says, yeah, I made a little investment in wheat futures, you know, and I made $186,000 in one single day. And <laughs> I, we get back and we get back in the truck and I, and I, um, I go, okay, what are you talking about? You know, cause he had not told me anything about this. He says, well, and this was a man, a very substantial man. He said, well, you know, you know, Chernobyl blew up. Right. And I said, yeah, he said, he goes, uh, I heard when, you know, that day we pulled over, I said, yeah, he goes, I heard that on the radio. He said, I called the Boston Globe at the time. He called the, the various different newspapers. He wanted to confirm it. He was smart enough to know that Chernobyl was sitting in the middle of the Ukraine, which was the breadbasket of the Soviet, the former Soviet Union at the time. And he knew if he bought a million dollars worth of wheat futures, he'd see a huge profit. And two weeks later, he said, the only thing I didn't do was hold on to it long enough. He said, I had 24 hours. He said, I should have held on to it. Even though now he said, I'd have, I'd have, we wouldn't be working anymore. So it's a, <laughs> uh, yeah, interesting story, right? The power of the media and things like that and, and understanding what's going on and having situational awareness and being cognizant of what's going on around you. You know, he, he was a guy I learned, I learned a ton from him, but we, we would start, but you know, I started like the, one of the uh, first, I franchised a business in 19, when was it? It was in the eighties sometime, but anyways, a mobile uh, onsite mobile uh, vehicle service company. And at the time they were today, they're fairly common, but at that time they were not common. And so we went out and we actually built uh, 35 franchises around the country. My, I had a business partner with me and we, we just got into where we needed so much more capital. We were talking to venture capitalists and guys like that. We finally just, somebody gave us an offer and we sold the business and, and in many ways we're glad we did, but uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was another great learning experience. So. Anyway. Wow. So, so how many businesses, if you can remember, how many businesses have you, have you kind of started and seen through? Uh, let's see. Probably four or five, I guess. Told you, I'm and, a serial entrepreneur. Yeah, and, and those are those are all businesses that you started. You didn't purchase any of them that were already in existence and, and operated them. Yeah, didn't purchase any. So I, so yeah, this question originally came out of the vending company, and you had asked, did I purchase it or did I run it? So I actually did purchase a small vending route from a guy, but mostly it was an asset buy. Meaning, I, I saw I, I found this guy in, a, in an ad, and I went and looked at all his stuff, and I looked at his accounts, and I went through all of his accounts because I kind of knew the business, and I was like, yeah, this, these are okay. And long story short, I mean, I got his price way down, but I basically bought his equipment. Is really what I was doing. I was just buying his equipment. It was a good it was a good opportunity just on his equipment. It just happened to be that some of them were on location. So then we, we just took and we just expanded that out. I mean, we took that out from, I think he had seven accounts or something like that, but he had a ton of equipment that was sitting in his garage. It's kind of a long story. If, if somebody wants to talk vending, they can, they can contact me afterwards and I'll talk them out of it, hopefully, um, or talk them into it either way, but they'll, they'll have a good idea. Let's put it that way, right? They'll have a good idea of whether they should get into it or not. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we expanded it out. We went from seven accounts out to about a hundred and I think our peak was 112. And, um, we did very, very well with that business. It was, uh, it was really nice. And the only, you know, mistake we'll say we made in that business was we were largely vested in a couple of, uh, segments of the business, which was mostly construction and construction supplies. So we were heavily invested in, uh, Oh, things like concrete plants and lumber supply companies and drywall companies and things like that. And this was, we started that in 1995 and it ran and it was until, well, I actually sold it in 2008 because in the one year from 2007 and 2008, because the building, because of the real estate crash, the building supply places went from, uh, you know, being very, very busy to being absolutely out of business. And um, we lost 80% of our business in one year and we did not lose an account 
for reasons of lack of service. We lost accounts because uh, companies closed wow. is what it was. And they were, they were closing facilities. So yeah. And, and we also had a, situations like we had one very, very large account. They had 250 employees. They went from 250 employees to 12 and uh, vending is largely based in a numbers game. So the more people, the better off you do. And when you go from 250 to 12, obviously you see a huge decrease. So anyway, yeah. So, no, so numbers wise, I guess when it was going well, how much, how much is a vending machine business making? Obviously depends on locations and number of routes and, and clients. It, a lot of it just depends on how you run it and, and what your business operation is. We actually, we got very process driven where we, we were driving for dollars, if you want to call it that. So we were, we were working on a dollar per hour average and trying to maintain a hundred dollars an hour, which at the time was, was a decent rate. And we would, we would net at the end of the year, we would net a little over 10%. Yeah. So did you have a background in all these businesses or did you kind of just see an opportunity and then start it? Right. Because, I mean, some of them are related, like selling the trucks and the car services. But then you also mentioned, obviously, the vending machines and then in the sewer industry. So was it just that you, you saw an opportunity or you met somebody who saw an opportunity and you partnered together to make it happen? Or did you kind of have an experience in each of these areas? So that's a that's a great question, because, for example, the vending business I was actually at the time was full-time selling trucks. And what I saw was I was out calling on my customers because largely if I had to describe our customers in the vending business, they were companies that owned trucks. And the, the reason they were companies that owned trucks is they had lots of employees, meaning truck drivers, who really can, I would, I was, I'm very observant and watch all the time. And I would see that these guys were eating and drinking all the time. And every time I would go into one of their locations, they had horrible vending. And of course, I had background in the vending by that time. I had worked in the vending industry, you know, when I first got out of school and had, had, you know, a number of years in the, in the vending business. And then kind of came, I, I looked at it and I said, these guys need good service. And so, it just, it was born out of that. So the, and then, and then the vending business fed the truck business because as I'm in doing the vending on the side, it was kind of a side hustle. It ended up being a full-time business, but it was, it was originally, we would, we would have called it a side hustle, but I'd be in talking to the guys and they go, you know, and, and they would throw out the condition of their equipment, you know? So now I know, okay, so these guys really have some trucks that need to be replaced. So that gave me the end to go in and, and go in. And because I had a I had a, a level of information at the very base level down at the driver level, I could go in and talk to the ownership of the company and and sell features and benefits and advantages of what their drivers really wanted. And because driver retention is huge, right? So trying to maintain your drivers is a, is a really strong uh, business concern for anybody that owns vehicle or owns trucks up home. And when I say trucks, I'm talking about medium and heavy duty. So anything with six wheels plus, you know, six wheels up to 18. But yeah, so that, that it, they kind of fed off each other, you know, and then, and it, and it was just kind of crazy. And then I got into vending full time after and, and let the truck go aside because obviously like all side hustle or not all, but a good side hustle, it starts taking over. And then we got, we kind of wandered a little bit after 08, we sold the, the vending business, but, and then we started, we, what did we do after that? I'm trying to think. Oh, I worked for a gun club for a while. Um, which basically was working. I worked in the skeet trap fields and that was, sing I call it single serve vending. It just threw up target instead of a, a snack or a soda. And then uh, went back into the truck business when my wife moved to Texas. And then now I'm, now I'm actually in the handyman business and the handyman business came out of just going out and doing a little bit of marketing on it online. And now I can't stop. <laughs> so, so what does that mean well, now? Do you, do you have employees or do you do all the work yourself or? So we've been doing this just a little over a year. Right now, I have one guy that I work with. He actually has his own company, and we, we do strategic partnership, if you want to call it that, 
we largely do that so that we can do um, larger jobs where we can work together and it it makes the paperwork process easier and and things like that. I've, I'm kind of, I've, I've had employees when I had the vending company, I had a bunch of employees. I think at the max I had seven or eight and I kind of am at the point where I'm, I think I'm over having a bunch of employees unless there's really a huge return on investment. And so, but independent contractors are a different story. So I always like the concept of having independent contractors because the pay, there's a lot less paperwork and, and, uh, you know, if, if they do a good job and you work a good relationship with the people and you have good expectations put out there and things like that, being an independent contractor and working with somebody can be fantastic. You know, it really can. So that's the model we're working on right now. And we're, we're actively seeking people that are qualified that really know what they're doing, which is a whole different issue. But anyway. Um, cause yeah. right now, yeah, <laughs> one of our, one of our biggest, biggest customer, uh, segments right now in this business is following in behind contractors that haven't done their job properly. So mm. I see it every single day. They'll, mm. they'll be a blog post eventually called the, uh, you know, they don't call them con dash tractors for no reason. So it's coming. <laughs> so I know Jay's kind of asked this sooner, but I think it's a, an important topic and something interesting to think for anybody who's a little bit entrepreneurial. How much did you put into each of these businesses and, and, and did you put a bunch on the side when you were starting them? I mean, I, if for someone that wants to start a business, their, their thought process is probably, hey, how much should I put into it, right? And how long should I keep going to see if it's going to be successful? Yeah, great questions. And, and for, entre- for anybody wanting to contemplate the entrepreneurial lifestyle, I think the biggest thing that, and that you have to understand is if you don't have any customers or or customer research, you don't really know if there's a business that actually exists that runs profitably. So uh, I, I see this all the time. People start businesses, but they don't realize that they, they don't run the basic numbers, right? So if you're the first thing I tell anybody when they want to start a business is number one, be prepared to work a lot because you're going to work a lot and have a, like a, a true stack of talents, meaning you need to understand sales and you need to understand marketing and sales and marketing are not the same thing. But if you can have the greatest marketing in the world, but if you can't get them to sign on the dotted line, it does you no good. You have to understand operations to a degree. You know, what are you doing? You have to understand what your customer is looking for. So is the customer really, what is, what is their pain point? What do you, what problems do you solve? What value do you add? What are the things that, you know, what, what is it that you sell, right? And I say that in that, like, say, for example, in the vending business, what did we sell? Well, most people say, well, you sold snacks and you sold drinks. I said, no, I sold refreshment because I saw over and over again, I'd see people come into a break room and this was the highlight of their day. And I know that sounds crazy, but a lot of these guys getting in there and getting that refreshment and get done was awesome. What we're selling right now is we're selling, we're selling home solution products. So basically somebody calls me and they say, can you do this? Can you do that? And I say, well, yeah. And, and what have you had done? And they'll usually tell some horror story of somebody not, you know, finishing the job or walking off the job or whatever. And we go and we fix the problem, you know, and we show up on time and they're in the first, you show up on time and they, they come to the door and they say, they go, uh, it's nine o'clock. I'm like, yes, that's what time we said. It was nine o'clock. We're going to be here. Well, contractors don't come on time. <laughs> True story, right? And so they go, really? Like, really? <laughs> They don't come on time. You know, it's crazy things like that. And so those are competitive advantages. So if you're, if you're thinking about starting a a business, you really, you need to understand what you're, what you want to do. You have to understand what you want to do. You have to understand your competitive advantage 
And then you can work all the numbers out from there. So it depends on the business because different businesses have different requirements for, for cash flow and things like that. They have different requirements. So I, I think we talked, but I mean, we've got rental properties. And so in the rental business, obviously, you do need to have some money put back just for things like roofs and, and uh, you know, uh, water heaters and roofs and all the things that go along with a house breaking down. You need to have that amount of money back. You need to, you need to really understand not you don't have to have complete understanding of the financials, but you have to understand what the flow rate is going to be. How is money going to flow through the business? And when do you get paid? And what happens if you don't get paid? And and all of the things kind of like in, in personal finance, they call it the emergency fund. But you got to have a little bit back. You can't you can't go without nothing back because things will go wrong. They always do. And you have to be able to recover from those things. And so that's really the, the biggest thing. But I mean, somebody wants to start a business, number one, determine if there's a need. Is there a need? Millionaires Unveiled, you guys determined there was a need for people to listen uh, you know, to listen to stories like this and learn from these stories. And so it's a, it's a great example of, of a need. How did you decide when to sell a business and, and why not just keep running it for another 10 years or five years or whatever? Why did you just sell, sell when you decided to sell? Yeah. Selling, selling businesses is an interesting proposition. Sometimes, so one of the businesses we sold, we, we basically were so undercapitalized that we realized we were undercapitalized. And it was just about that time that somebody came to us and said, we really like your concept. We want to do this, 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 and this with it. And we were like, so, you know, and, and long story short, they kind of made us an offer we couldn't refuse. That was the, the truck repair business. So we were like, here you go. Thanks very much. It's been great. You know, have a nice, have a nice day. And, um, the vending business I decided to sell largely because I think, I think it was just overwhelming me, um, at that point. Business had dropped off so much and, and, uh, I had actually had to let everybody go in the company. I was doing almost all the work myself and, it just was, it was overwhelming me. I had some other things going on in my personal life that I needed to, to focus on at that time. And so that was really a very personal decision. And it, for those like entrepreneurs looking to start businesses, you do want to keep your eyes open for purchasing a business from somebody like me that was, you know, kind of, I don't want to say I hadn't fallen on hard times, but I was, I had some challenges in the, in my personal, it was mostly in my personal life. And I really needed to focus on getting those issues resolved and the business was suffering. So the business, it wasn't really distressed, but it was, I was in a negotiating mood. Let's put it that way. So that's just a kind of a little bit of a business tip. If, if you, if you run on somebody or getting divorced or something's going on, they're sick, uh, you know, especially older guys, if they're, if they're sick, if they've got cancer or even the inkling of a cancer, you have opportunities that it will arise. So that's how we determine when to sell, uh, largely. And then other times, you know, other times, so we sold one other one and that basically was, we were just ready. We were just ready to get out of it. It wasn't doing what we wanted to do. And, and again, we fished, we basically fished and they, somebody came and we're like, perfect. We got our, we basically got our capital out of it and we were glad to, to be out of it. So couple of different, you know, there's three or four different stories there, but one, one was an offer we couldn't refuse, which is, which is out there. There's been huge trends in a lot of businesses towards what they call consolidators. So particularly in the trades businesses and things like that, where the waste industry is noted for this, where a guy goes out and he starts a, a trash company up, you know, and he goes out and he develops all these local customers. And then a waste management or, a, or an advanced disposal or one of the big companies comes in and they want to buy his routes from him. 
and they'll give him, I mean, top dollar for that thing. And he, they'll, of course you have to sign the non-compete and all that, but he walks away with whatever he's, you know, whatever his business is worth, usually it's several million dollars and he either retires or he waits through the, the uh, non-compete period and he starts another one. And I know one guy, this is just kind of an aside, but I mean, I met one guy, this is all, I met these people through selling trucks and, um, I, I met this one guy. I mean, he had sold three waste companies. He sold it to the to all three. He sold the waste management, advanced disposal, and um, Republic. So he had sold He's probably laughing his guts out all the way to the bank. Oh, he did very, very well on all those transactions. And he had a formula. He had a process. It was just this. It was very formulaic. And after he did the third one, he was done. Then he was done. I don't know what his net worth was, but I know it was very high. Yeah. And he just said, yeah, I can invest this and I'm done. I don't need to do anything more. So That's awesome. Just, yeah, different ways to do things. Totally. So, Larry, you're sitting with a $2 million net worth. When in this whole journey did you decide to pay off your house? Oh, um, that actually happened this year. Really? And, and we, why? Yes, it happened. There was some cash sitting there. It was kind of one of those one of those things. And we're, we are um, – so I'm, I, to, I, I told you before the show, but, I mean, I'm a little older. I'm 55. And so we, we have been having conversations on, on uh, retirement, if you want to call it that, or, or on slowing it up. Let's say we'll call it slowing it up. And um, one of the things we wanted to do was a little um, RV traveling. And, and we're talking about slow travel. We're talking about going out to, you know, maybe going to the National Park Yellowstone or something and working out at Yellowstone and spending three months in, in Yellowstone. When, when we did that, we're like, okay, so we want to keep a home base. And one of the things we want to do is have, obviously, when you run businesses, right, when you always run a business, your goal is, in my or my goal, let's rephrase that, my goal has always been to keep my expenses as low as possible. Because expenses, you know, profits, single net profit minus expenses equals double net profit minus taxes equals triple net profit, which is what you get to keep. We really wanted to keep the expenses as low as possible. Well, mortgage payment is a huge, is a huge deal. And as you know, the markets are running pretty hot right now. And um, so we're kind of like... If we put the money into the market, do we, you know, what's, what's our guarantee? And of course the guarantee is that, the, and I'm not being a, a naysayer, by the way, but we know that if we pay the mortgage off, we get a guaranteed rate. Plus we get this punch to cash flow. And so we, we, and I say we, it's, it's the wife and I, and we, we have these conversations all the time. So we decided that we would, we were going to take, even though it's very, very, it was a very low rate, we were going to take the guaranteed right now because the cash flow will then we're spinning that into the market. So it, it's sort of, and, and when you're older, at least from my perspective, there's this great debate. Do you pay the mortgage off or not? Right. I mean, there's a huge mathematically you don't, right. I mean, it, it, we, most math people will tell you, you wouldn't want to pay off the mortgage, but we got to the peace of mind item and we're like done, you know, done. So yeah. that's where we went with that. Makes sense. And uh, so that, that happened this year. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and if the market, takes a deep dive. We don't care. I yeah. mean, we don't ever care anyway, but it's, it's, it's uh, definitely, if you look at it through the long term, we don't care, but it's a, it's a guaranteed return and it, and it increases our free cash flow. So totally. it is what it is. That's awesome. So Larry, where do you go from here? Do you have a target net worth, target <laughs> cash flow? What do you, where are you going to go from here? Yeah. So we have, we have a target cash flow and that's going to be between 80 and a hundred thousand a year. We're probably on current trajectory. We're going to be there. We're almost there now. We'll probably be there in a couple of years. We've got, 
we've got, so the wife works for a large corporation and she's got a fantastic benefits package and she becomes actually becomes retirement eligible in a couple of years. And one of the greatest uh, benefits of that retirement eligibility is the ability to have very inexpensive, uh, good healthcare, if you want to call it that. So, um, you know, name brand healthcare. And so she's going to hold out for that. But once, once we get there, it's going to be, we're going to be reevaluating everything. So, but we're working on that. I, I don't, my personal net goals or net worth goals and, and where do we want to go? Or I figured I'll work, you know, I'll really work doing something for un, unless I just can't or I just stop enjoying it because I love to, to do things. I love to bring pleasure and help people out. I'm really big on trying right now. One of my other projects is trying to get kids to, we're trying to spread the word of financial literacy, if you want to call it that, or financial independence. Um, but to get everybody to understand that, you know, you just have to, you have to make more than you spend, you know, it's like yeah. a tough concept for people. You yeah. got to make more than you spend, you know, or you have to spend less than you make. I'm not sure how you want to put it, but you got to do it. We both are really driving somewhere in the future. We're going to be working on that types of projects. And, and uh, I have a particular affinity for the trades guys and I, I'm going to do some stuff for the trades, you know, where we're going to try to teach some financial literacy out to the trades guys. And then we also have a, another little pet project just on tips and tricks for things to do to your home, you know, like maintenance projects and things like that. So it's all, it's all out there, but yeah, I would continue to grow the, continue to grow the net worth, uh, live, you know, live off the, the income as it were from the net worth and have retirement, but work on our terms, you know, work on, work when we want to work and, and where we want to work. Awesome. That's Good for the you. Ideas. And, and, yeah. and then those rentals you have, are those paid off? They are not right now. And we are, we have been having contemplation on, on which way to go. We're, I think we're going to, we're working right now. In fact, we've been having that conversation the past few months. I think we're going to do kind of a debt snowball idea. So we'll pay one of them off and then take the free mm-hmm. cash flow from that, pay the, pay the other one off. And then We'll we'll probably acquire some more properties eventually. It's just right now the market where we are. Uh, it's actually not just where we are, but the market's a little red hot right now. So we're sort of waiting for it to cool off a little bit. Right. And those are both so, single family homes. Yes, they are. And what do they cash flow after your mortgage payment? They net. Let's see. They net a little over six hundred each. Okay. So Larry, just kind of thinking about your story and journey as a whole, are there two or three things that maybe stood out to you to help you become financially successful and to become a millionaire? You know, was it was it your work ethic? Was it a little bit of luck? Was it you were good at finding these opportunities for these for these companies? Was it that you're a good salesperson? I mean, are there a couple things that maybe stood out to you on on this journey and how you've been able to be so successful? There's yeah, there's always a, a couple of things. One is I'm a real cause and effect guy. So I'm, I'm always, and I'm very, I try to be very, very observant. So I'm always looking for reasons. You know, I'm always looking at the whys, like why is, does this do this? Why does it do that? And then when you see why things happen, sometimes you can fulfill that need. So that's, that's one of the things. All of, if you're looking for tactical skills and things, the ability to sell is absolutely critical. Now there's different kinds of selling. I did largely business to business, what I call professional sales. And it's a very different, uh, type of sale than what most people think of sales, but it's really working on value add and things like that. But you're going to, I don't care who you are, you're going to have to learn how to sell at one time or another. Now you might call it marketing, you might call it sales, you you know, you might call it relationship building, but relationship building is actually a form of sales. So I think you definitely have to be sales. The other thing that I would say too is, is absolutely critical is you have to be courageous. You know, it, it, and it's not, you, you just have to do it. It's kind of a combination of courage and doing it. Right. So you, you have to take action and you've heard this all before, 
because I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, so you know you've heard this all before. But you know what? You have nothing to lose. You really don't. And and money can be replaced. And and the the people make money today in ways that I could never even have dreamed of as a kid. And they make money quickly via the internet and things in ways that that didn't exist 20 years ago. Um, we always laugh. We always tell the story about. I, I do some business consulting if people ask me, you know, can you give me some help on their business? And they always go, man, you know, should I build a website or not? And I'm like, yeah, you need to build a website. And they're like, oh, I don't know. It's kind of expensive. I go, expensive is $4,000 a month for the Yellow Pages ad. And oh, by the way, you didn't proofread your ad and you put the wrong phone number in there. That's expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, think about that one. You, you've got to be courageous. You just got to go out and do it. Yeah, I have nothing to lose. That's like sales and call. I was, I'm a big, was always a big cold caller. I just walk into places, you know, and, and just do it, you know, and just to find out who to talk to. And, and it, it's not a big deal, you know. It's the worst they can say is no. So get over it. Yeah. So those yeah, are good, the two big good things. For you. I think that, I think that's great advice. So just in closing here, I just want to end with a couple. Uh, Rapid fire questions here. So, what's the most expensive car you've ever purchased? Uh, about seventy-five thousand. Okay, most expensive meal out that you've personally paid for? Uh, around three hundred dollars. We really like really nice food, so I'm going to say we've for for the two of us, my wife and I, it's been about three hundred dollars, about one hundred fifty dollars a plate. Okay, what's what's worth spending more money on to you, and and what's not worth spending money on to you? So we are, we, we definitely like experiences these days. We've, we've been through the stages of having all the stuff and we've, you know, we've, there's not much that we really need if you want to call it that or anything that we greatly desire as far as the products and services, but we do like experiences. So, so we like to travel. Um, we like to do, you know, unique things when we travel and things like that. So that's, that's really worth spending the money on. And then anything having to do with personal self-help and development, I will spend a, a certain amount of money on it. And then also um, anything that we basically derive value from. So we are very value driven. Gotcha. Uh, do you remember what age you became a millionaire at? First time or the second time? <laughs> See, that's amazing. I did we should have hit, hit on that, that you did it again. <laughs> I lost I lost it too, you know. Probably, when was it? Probably about 34 or 35. Wow, it's really young. It's been a while. Really young. Yeah. Uh, what's been your range of household income through your working life? Uh, anywhere from nothing to somewhere in the mid two fifties. Okay. And a, a listener question that, that was submitted, if you were down to about $2,000, what would you spend it on? Oh, if, if I was dying, you know, like, or, or if I really, or was it, or was it something bad happened? And so we're down to no money, which clarify that question. No, no. If you're, if you're dying, your last kind of your last hurrah, what would it be? Uh, probably spending time with my family would be what I would do. Awesome. Well, Larry, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. What a great story. Any last piece of advice you'd like to share? Yeah, I have to ask about the shoes. So you forgot to ask me the shoes. Yeah, how much? <laughs> to a little over 250 And that was because they were special shoes. But I, I spent so much time on my feet all day. I've learned the long and the short of it is take good care of your feet because they matter. And when you figure you spend, well, I spend eight hours a day or so on my feet. And if when I take it down to the hourly, uh, $250 is nothing. It's totally. nothing, yeah. you know, you know, and so you know, these shoes also have. It's interesting because anybody, anybody, I think we've had a few people mention it, you know, anybody who's over like 40 that we talk about it, they're all like, oh, spend money on expensive shoes is totally worth it. 
Yeah, it's totally good. They have to, you know, they fit well. They have, they have to be right. You know, my, my shoes all have uh, protective toes on them. You know, they have, they're not steel. I actually use carbon fiber, but um, they have a 150,000 pound crush test. But um, that, you spend good money on shoes because you, your feet are very complex machines. And gosh, if you spend any time on your feet, you'll appreciate it. Ask a nurse. They'll tell you. Right. <laughs> they're the ones right. that'll tell you. So. Right. Any uh, cool. books, that, books that stand out to you, Larry, in closing here? Yeah, I'm big. I'm a big Napoleon Napoleon Hill fan. So Think and Grow Rich. Um, I've I've read Rich Dad Poor Dad, uh, Million Dollar Next Door. I'm trying to think what I've read in the success I've lately. I'm a, Alice Shrugged is a book that everybody should read. At least all Americans should read it. Um, and Ayn Rand. What else do we have? I read actually I read the complete Winston Churchill uh, series, which was a three or smaller, like 1,200 pages, but really fascinating. I read several biographies. Any bio, read read a biography of Dwight Eisenhower and read all kinds of biographies on all of the last centuries, the robber barons, if you want to call it, but the guys that built America, Rockefeller and J J P Morgan and all those guys, yeah. really yeah. worthwhile. Uh, read the autobiography of Ben Franklin. He's probably the beginning of the of the initial frugalist movement or the Phi Guys, if you want to call it that. He was he was something else. And man, the guy had it going on. He was a rock star in his day. I mean, a rock star. So yeah, anyway. lots, to, lots yep. to learn from those guys. I agree. Well, hey, Larry, thanks so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Again, that's Larry. Net worth of 1.9 million. Congrats on your success, and and thanks for coming on the show. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks, Larry. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.